Welcome to Safa Security Chat Chat, episode 159 for the 6th of August, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski coming to you live from B-Sides Las Vegas and Password Con, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin. Hi, Paul. Hello, Chester. You were saying something when we were chatting earlier about 40. I guess that meant degrees on the centigrade scale. Yeah, it's just around 40 degrees, which is actually not too bad this time of year here, considering it's a desert and everything. And in fact, when I arrived yesterday, we had flash flooding. It was rather pleasant to have the temperature down. Well, what's the temperature of computer security looking like this week? Well, uh, I mean, obviously the hype machine is in full gear leading up to B-Sides, Black Hat, and DEF CON. But, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of folks turning out here for this B-Sides. It's one of the bigger ones I've been to. Very well organized. Lots of space. Lots of interested people. We've got three or four different rooms for talks. Um, Yeah, go the community, eh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I thought your research that you did around uh, spam bots, or a honey bot, I guess, as you called it, uh, it was pretty interesting, right? Because we, we know that most spam is sent through people's infected desktop machines kind of utilizing their, or borrowing, I suppose, their cable or DSL connections in order to send the stuff on behalf of the crooks. You know, it's hard to quantify, like, how much spam actually gets sent from an infected computer. What, what were the findings that you came across when, when you did a little bit of a lab experiment? This was a chap in our Hungarian lab who did this work. He wanted to answer exactly those same questions. Just how interesting or important would your little computer seem to those guys? And so he ran this experiment for a week. Of course, he allowed the, uh, he allowed the bot command and control instructions in. He allowed the bot to generate its spam messages from its email lists and its templates. And he allowed the messages to go out, but not onto the real internet. They were just, they were just uh, harvested by what you might call a dead-end server. And in one week, there were three-quarters of a million unique spam messages. Each message had an average of just over seven recipients. Uh, so in the week, 5.5 million email addresses actually got spammed. Uh, the total volume that was sent out, 30 gigabytes. And the other really interesting thing is the spam, the messages that were sent out were split roughly one quarter were trying to send out new malware samples. You saw 11 different malware samples during the week. And the other three quarters of the spam bandwidth, if you like, were uh, a spam campaign promoting a Canadian pharmacy, for want of a better word. So it's quite interesting that obviously the, the crooks are putting in quite a bit of effort to make sure that during a spam campaign, they're taking a reasonable proportion of the spam available spam bandwidth and using it to build botnets for next time. Well, exactly. That was what I was thinking. The, the malware samples likely are to make sure there's plenty of fresh victims for uh, additional machines to be turned into bots to send more spam. And I guess it's important when you look at these numbers to remember, too, that you know this wasn't like a spam cannon test. It wasn't a test of how much spam can we send. It literally is a representative sample of any other machine that was in the same botnet. That's what that machine was probably doing as well, right? Yes. So if you, you, know, if you do the multiplication, then... 10,000 home computers can put out about 50 billion spams per week. And so anyone who's still thinking, hey, little old me, I'm not on the crook's radar, I'm not important to them. Well, you are important to them because you could be worth 5 million spams a week. And it would be naive to assume that the kind of guys who would take 30 gig of your bandwidth 
without paying you or even asking permission. It would be naive to assume that they're not going to get their bot to do other stuff on your computer at the same time, like look around for passwords, find interesting files, maybe set up a little proxy that they can rent to other crooks, and so forth. Oh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen that behavior many a time for distribution of lots of other types of malware that we've tied back to similar things like Zeus and fake antivirus and all these different things. Many of those machines were initially part of spamming networks or sending out additional garbage like that. And and not only that, I mean, when pe- people sometimes go, well, you know, how much... Uh, money can these guys really make off this stuff? I mean, people aren't really clicking and buying these things. And we've seen in the past research by like Professor Stephen Savage at UC San Diego uh, and Brian Krebs and others showing that, well, you know, if you get a 1% response rate on your Canadian pharmacy spam, but you're sending 5 million of those, right? That's actually decent money. If, if 1% of 5 million people receiving all those messages ends up clicking through to buy some pills, that's, you know, that's a pretty good return for infecting a single desktop computer with a single piece of malware. The fact that this spam campaign was three quarters dodgy pharmaceuticals and one quarter malware suggests that you're not dealing here with people who aim to make medicine free. You're dealing with people who aim to part you from your money and all your data. Now, I wrote a story this week about uh, point-of-sale systems getting compromised again, more credit card details being stolen, uh, some malware that's being referred to as back-off. You know, the malware wasn't particularly new, but what was a bit more novel, I guess, is the approach with which the criminals are using to distribute it. Um, one, uh, I guess, a more narrow approach than a lot of other malware. So, you know, back to what you were just talking about, I think these spam messages, especially the ones with viruses attached, are kind of being sent willy-nilly to any email address they can find. Whereas it turns out most point-of-sale computers, especially in retail environments, have some sort of remote access tools enabled, whether that be LogMeIn or Microsoft Remote Desktop or VNC or these types of things. And the crooks know that. So the, for this particular campaign, it looks like they're brute forcing, guessing the passwords on those remote access tools. Now, when you say brute forcing, in many cases, what you really mean is trying a depressingly short list of common passwords with a couple of digits on the end, don't you? Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, some of the research into this back-off malware has shown that a lot of them had passwords like POS123 for point of sale. Others had passwords with the brand names of the POS terminals themselves. I'm thinking of a different POS for the password in that case. Don't know about you. Yeah, well, (laughs) precisely. So, I mean, they may not even be guessing, you know, thousands of different guesses or anything. They're, they're largely working off a list of well-known passwords either used by point-of-sale management companies or things related directly to point-of-sale terminals. If you have an RDP password that lets someone inside your network onto the server, you know, a password like POS123, that's pretty much like opening your server room door wedging it open and then going home for the weekend. It really is taking an absolutely huge and completely needless risk. Um, There was some research released about how you can hijack anyone's Instagram account 
by hijacking a session ID cookie, uh, which of course harkens back to the fire sheep attacks from three or four years ago, which you know, you'd hope again that all of us had learned from those attacks uh, that you know, having uh, authentication tokens and things like that in unencrypted sessions is a very bad idea. But more importantly, this kind of also became a, more of a story about responsible disclosure because Facebook refused to pay for the bug and, and the um, researcher decided that the appropriate course of action was to tell the world how to hack them. He had step-by-step instructions with code you could cut and paste and unfortunately even says in there, wait for somebody to use the Instagram iOS app on the same network as you and you know, then steam in and steal their account. You think he could at least, if he's going to do a full disclosure, at least say, now log into your account from your iDevice. Notice how the cookie is visible, etc., etc. But it's almost as though he's urging and inciting you to do this to other people without even bothering to mention that not only is that not very nice, it's not very legal either in most jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, although I, I, I suppose it could have been worse. He could have went full Fire Sheep and released, you know, an app for your Android that would automatically hijack everyone's Instagram account every time they saw it. Yes, that's what he was threatening on Twitter. Oh, was he? Yeah, it said, denied bug bounty. Next step is to write automated tool enabling mass hijacking of accounts. Pretty serious Vuln Facebook please fix. There does seem to be an awful lot of nya 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 petulance in there. Having said that, mobile apps and shabby security seem to go hand in hand, so I cannot see his point in making a big deal out of this. I just don't approve of the way he did it. Well, and it's, I guess it's a good lesson to um, tech giants looking to make acquisitions as well, and that a billion dollars doesn't apparently buy you any security. So when you're spending money on all these hot tech startups, you do kind of need to go through and audit their code, audit their systems, make sure that you know their apps don't have these kinds of flaws, make sure they don't have unprotected credit card processing servers in the back room. But it's only a session cookie, Chester. It's only valid for a day or two. It's not like it's a password that you could use next week. What could possibly go wrong? Well, there's lots of things that can go wrong, and that takes us to the final story. Uh, Our colleague Mark Stockley wrote a story about three common mistakes small businesses make that, you know, aren't that hard to fix that will go a long way toward improving security for small businesses. And, of course, the first one uh, that, that comes to mind for me is not encrypting their laptops, or really probably not encrypting much of anything, to be fair. I don't run into encrypted thumb drives very often. I don't run into people encrypting files before putting them on Dropbox. And I certainly don't run into encrypted laptops, uh, in particular in the small business environment. I'd agree. And there are all sorts of excuses, aren't there? Oh, well, it's too hard. I might forget my password. It slows your computer down. All things that are actually, with a decent product, pretty easy to manage. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, the the analogy I've heard made before was uh, related to like, you know, do you wait until your house is burglarized before you buy insurance, right? Like, it's a lot cheaper to think ahead, pay a little bit of a small fee up front and protect yourself from a, a known risk as opposed to waiting until it happens and then going, oh, now what? Yes. And the difference here is that actually encrypting your data is better than insurance because it's actually preventative. It doesn't just help you recover from the loss afterwards. It actually prevents somebody getting hold of the stuff in the first place. And interestingly, one of the points that Mark makes, obviously, is I think that you know there's still a lot of confusion out there 
with people going, oh, but I've got a strong administrator password. Isn't that encrypted already? And of course, they're forgetting that if someone, for something like a laptop, if someone actually gets their hands on it, or if someone steals your server and takes out the hard disk, then the administrator password is kind of irrelevant if they've got physical access to the disk. Which kind of leads uh, us to Mark's second point around backups. Um, I actually had an experience over the last week and a half. I had two different hard disks fail in my server. And I was so relieved that I had encrypted them, going back to the first point, because it meant I didn't have to physically destroy them the way I used to. You know, again, like disk space is so cheap, it's shocking how businesses are handling uh, backups. Uh, A friend of mine um, asked me for some help at his small business, and I noticed he had like a 200 gigabyte laptop drive plugged into the server that had filled up a year and a half ago and hadn't um, had anybody, you know, watching it or maintaining it. And, and his understanding or expectation was, well, I bought a backup drive, it must be fine. Um, so these things do require some monitoring. And, and again, if you do the encryption properly, the cloud is a great way of ensuring that you're not going to run out of storage space because, uh, you know, a lot of cloud backup services now, you know, allow you to encrypt stuff locally before they go up. And I mean, storage in the cloud is super cheap. So really, point two builds on point one. First, you know, make sure you're encrypting those laptops and then make sure you're doing backups and that those are encrypted. And then his point three was more uh, on stuff that you and I have talked about a lot on getting rid of Windows XP. And, and it's not really been a priority, it would seem, in the, on the smaller end of the business scale. Um, but it really is an important thing. And, and there's not that much money involved these days. I, I recently purchased a, a new laptop that came with Windows 8. And the entire laptop with Windows was only $349. I mean, you know, you may not want to replace your laptops. You can buy upgrades. You can switch operating systems. There's a lot of choices you can make. But running XP is getting to be a higher and higher risk activity, isn't it? It is. And I can think of no better way to make that point than to quote directly from Mark's article where he writes, let's be absolutely clear, Windows XP is dead. It has passed on. It is no more. It has ceased to be. It has expired and gone to meet its maker. If you hadn't ignored its end of life announcement, it would be pushing up the daisies by now. It's history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. It's shuffled off this mortal coil, run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. And then as he quips, it is an XP. Ha. Well, for a moment, I thought you were talking about TrueCrypt, but I think that's a great way to wrap up Suffice Security Chat Chat 159. As usual, for all the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes or RSS. Uh, We're on soundcloud.com slash security, or you can get us on TuneIn as well. And until next time, stay secure.